0: Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabbiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. No one knows the current statistics on suicide during this COVID pandemic. What we do know, though, is that everyone's psychological and emotional state have been adversely affected by the pandemic. As medical professionals, we witness and we receive reports and anecdotes of the increased rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, PTSD, domestic violence, and suicide. As a physician, we are conditioned, expected, and sort of well adapted to delivering difficult truths and diagnoses to our patients. But we as a group are not as comfortable accepting those truths about ourselves. Doctors and trainees in medicine are not immune to the adverse effects of stress at work, families, and everyday life. Burnout, depression, anxiety, and suicide are overrepresented in medicine. The pandemic has exacerbated all this and brought physicians' wellness and sense of balance to their critical points. Today. We will explore suicide as one of those consequences of intense stress and pain, be it physical and emotional. Families, friends, co workers who experience anyone who committed suicide have conflicting and overwhelming emotions after receiving the news and may linger through months, years, and sometimes a lifetime. We will explore emotions, the stigma associated with suicide. And various phases of responses of the living to suicide, and hopefully suggest coping strategies, especially during special holidays and occasions, to be able to move forward in a much healthier way. I would like to welcome my two guests, Kathleen Bettman and Francis Tong-Pallad. I met Kathy Bettman when she was in the marketing department at Stanford years ago. We then work together in promoting health through community health fairs in the Bay Area, where Stanford mobilized its resources to help educated communities in the Bay Area through blood pressure and diabetes screening, visual testing, cancer screening, lectures, workshops, and administration of flu shots. We share similar passion not only in helping marginalized communities, but also a passion for hiking, traveling, and enjoying whatever life has to offer. We did several hikes. One comes to mind was the Ultimate Hike, uh, which was an 11-day hike in New Zealand, and an extreme hike, most recently, in the windy and amazing Patagonia. Kathy holds a master's degree in public health, was involved in marketing at Stanford, and later researched in a device company, Varian. Since losing her son to suicide, she became an advocate for grief and peer counseling. She now donates her time to CARA in Palo Alto. Welcome, Kathy, and thank you for being here in the show. Now, I'll go to introduce Francis. Francis Palad is a Thai Puerto Rican American, a third-year medical student at Medical College of Wisconsin, I met Francis through the CYFAM, which is the Council of Young Filipino Americans in Medicine, which I am a member, not because of my age, but because of the mentoring experience that I could share with the youth in medicine. So I thought Francis was a Filipino American just to find <laughs> out that just to find out that he's actually Thai Puerto Rican American. Francis was one of the guests in my podcast on what are the students are saying about education during COVID. So I am inviting you to listen to that episode and also the other episodes of Medicine for Good podcast. This podcast actually helps me to bring a human face to medicine. So without further ado, Kathy and Francis, I welcome you to the show. I will start with you, Kathy. I am sure that when you heard of Foster's suicide, your son, you had a cadre of conflicting and very intense emotions. Would you mind sharing with us how that felt at the time?
1: Yeah, thank you. We lost Foster a little over five and a half years ago in April of 2015. He was a student down at UC Irvine studying computer science. And I won't go into detail about how we found out, but a local police officer came to our house and informed us that he was discovered in his condo and he had taken his life. You're immediately hit with just a tsunami of emotions. I think the first being disbelief. In our case, we had no warning. We never talked about suicide. In retrospect, there might've been some things at the time, though, we didn't see them as serious because we didn't have experience with suicide. I'd never known anybody who'd completed or committed suicide. And I think with suicide, unlike other deaths, and we might talk about this further, I think, in the podcast, you do have a lot of conflicting emotions. The fact that it's deliberate and the person didn't want to live anymore is something that's really hard to reconcile. And the wondering and the... Could have, should have, the so what ifs. I think are just always in your head, and they're there for a long time when you learn of a suicide of someone close to you. And I think that's somewhat unique about suicide, as opposed to other kinds of deaths. Obviously, you grieve other kinds of deaths, but you know, I, I think just the crush of emotions and the confusion and the disbelief stays with you much longer.
0: During that time when you had the the shock of receiving the news,
1: what did you do? Well, I think we just had to pick ourselves up and put one foot in front of the other. Immediately, our close family gathered around us and close friends and neighbors. And I think that is just really critical. Accept the help that you're given of any kind. Because people want to show compassion and they and they want to help. There are a couple kinds, I think, of grievers. And since I've learned, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more about what I'm doing, there's the intuitive kind of griever and the instrumental kind of griever. Intuitive feel, they feel the grief very intensely and I think show a lot of physical emotion and it's hard to lose that. Then there's the instrumental kind, I think that's what I am, who think about things more and want to do things and want to control their environment and actually maybe do more things in memory of the person. You know, I like to be busy. I like to honor him in tangible ways. And I think right afterwards, I think we kind of realized that we needed to do that to keep his memory alive. Not so long afterwards, we actually went down and they awarded him a posthumous degree at UC Irvine because he was actually a senior credit-wise, even though he was in his third year study. He went in with a lot of AP credits, and that was hard. It was very bittersweet, but it's something that we had to do, and my husband went up and accepted the diploma on his behalf, and those are the kind of things I think that it's hard to do them, but rather than, I think, keep the grief to yourself or close it up, it's a way of working through it, and it's hard, but I think when you get to the other side, it's a lot easier. So we did that. A few months later, I also went down and spoke at UCI. They had a suicide awareness day and an outside event booths and things. And I actually went down and I spoke because I found out that they had never had a parent speak at one of these. And I thought, really? You know, you need to hear from a parent. They've heard from other students, I think, in the past. So I went down and did that. And to me, I think those kind of things, they helped me and I think they helped us to kind of work through the grief. I also started to get involved with events and things, overnight walk with the suicide prevention and things like that, I think, to just, you know, do some concrete things to remember him. Yeah, I
0: remember being one of those gatherings after Foster's death. You and your family spoke at uh, Michael's in Mountain View, and it was such a a very sad moment and a a very intensely emotional one. Francis, how about you? And I really would like to thank you for being here. And this was an offshoot from the podcast a few episodes ago on Medicine for Good that you spoke. And I was actually caught uh, surprised when you intimated uh, a recent experience like two days before we did the podcast that you just lost a colleague, a friend to suicide Tell me more about that, like how you felt when you received the news.
2: Sure. So um, first off, Kathy, I want to thank you for sharing your story. An aspect of that really resonates with me, I think. So the the classmate that had passed two days before the day of your podcast, my friend, it was a similar situation where it sort of came out of nowhere in a in a similar way. No one had any way to predict that it was going to happen. So I think initially, yeah, definitely a lot of disbelief, I think, just because, you know, so he, uh, my, my friend, unfortunately, he was the second student in my year that had passed by suicide. But the first colleague, she was more of an acquaintance. And for him, when he passed away, it was different because both are incredible losses, of course. But, um, you know, he was someone that I had met when I started medical school. We had a lot of classes together. We saw each other quite a bit in the library. We spent a lot of time together the first two years, and I find that a lot of medical students also talk about this, where when we, the the first two years of school are the, the classroom years, so, you know, you tend to see students quite a bit more, but the third year, once you start getting in the hospital, you don't see folks as much, and shortly before my third year started, I remember just bumping into him, and we were, you know, just catching up as if, you know, just talking about, you know, board exams and things of that nature, things related to school. But, even during that interaction, like I had no way to know, and I remember looking at his eyes and I just remember even letting him know just sort of how I was doing because i've ha- I had a very difficult experience coming to medical school and it was definitely a, a huge transition and a huge struggle for me and I remember even sharing about that and usually, I find that when I'm openly vulnerable with another student, a lot of the times they feel comfortable to kind of share you know what's going on with them, but even after doing that, there was no way to tell he seemed like he was completely fine and so I also what also really resonates, Kathy, is when you kind of mention some of the thoughts that you're having about you know how or what could have happened or what things could have maybe said to maybe get a better understanding of how he was actually feeling inside. I wondered as well. And so going back to your question, I think uh, I think a lot of shock, really and disbelief. Yeah, very surreal. It's very surreal.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you even wonder. How could you diagnose someone who is having problems when they don't show any evidence of a problem? Like even in medicine, if someone is hurting, we could ask, where are you hurting?
2: But how Mm -hmm. about
0: if a person don't even know where they are hurting? How could you investigate that? Most of us, I believe, who had experienced someone who committed suicide, I don't think we had a clue, you know, and, and so you often wonder how could you then prevent it, right, if you don't have a clue. I myself, when I was finishing my internship at Stanford a long time ago, this is more than 35 years ago, one of my co-interns, who I thought was the prototype of the most brave, courageous, and intelligent intern in my class, committed suicide. I couldn't understand how could that be? Because when I I saw her, she was like the pillar of like courage and was so strong and stood up to the attending physicians, to the fellows, and really created an environment of basically openness and stuff like that. So I didn't have any clue. And I think that's during the time that as an intern... You are just so overwhelmed with your own life that it's just like trying to survive each day. And you are so siloed in, in terms of what you're going through, and you don't even know what's going on around you. And so that was a moment like a pause for all of us. The entire Department of Medicine's morale zoomed down. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to react to it. And then finally, our department created a social committee, a committee that promotes openness, socialization, and mingling of house staff. I was the chair of that committee, and we basically did, we were given a lot of money to try to promote wellness and balance for our interns and residents. So I think that was a, a moment of like change at the time and in our profession where we were really ill-prepared to deal with that. So in terms of mobilization of resources for both you, Kathy and Frances, what have the people around you uh, mobilized to, to kind of like put an anchor to this problem and help support people like you and I and Francis?
1: People around us, you're saying.
0: Right, your support yeah. structure.
1: Yeah, I think... Fortunately, you know, we have a close family. And like I said, friends and neighbors, and we just know they're always there. One thing interesting, though, about suicide, is that I think you do have to have your own resolve and resilience around it. Because of the nature of it, the people around you, they're ready to move on much earlier than you are, because it stays with you, I think, much longer in a stronger way than other kinds of deaths. So. I think you have to understand that and kind of realize that's natural for them. And you have to, I think, mobilize yourself to take care of yourself. And sometimes it may involve rituals, simple rituals to remember the person. They don't have to be complicated. You know, one thing we do, like Julieta said, we like to hike and travel. We take some of Foster's ashes everywhere we go and we find the most beautiful place we can find when we're on our travels to spread some ashes. <clears throat> so he's been around the world and, you know, he was the one who traveled with us. You know, he has an older brother and the older brother was usually busier in school. And Foster was the one who traveled with us. And that to us, I think is the way we going kind to of remember and to, I- is keep him alive for us. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Losses are
0: losses, right? So we respond to them differently. And I know losing someone to a natural cause or uh, accidents and stuff like that, we sort of deal with it differently. How do we deal with suicide differently than other kinds of losses?
1: There are a lot of differences. And I've learned that just through experience and through my counseling experience. Again, the fact that it's deliberate and the person didn't want to be here just causes so much ambivalence and confusion, Mm -hmm. I think, that sometimes it takes a long time for that to go away. And it doesn't totally go away. I think you're always questioning. I think you let go of those questions in other kinds of deaths.
0: So when we deal with that, like Francis, right? So you said that you were shocked and the disbelief. How about, like, how do we deal with the, The anger, you know, why did they take Mm -hmm. their lives, you know, like their life Mm -hmm. and the anger and how about the guilt?
2: So going back to the previous year when my first classmate had passed away, around that time, I was also struggling too. And actually, for a lot of reasons, it's a longer story, but I had to repeat the entire year, actually. And during that time, around that time is when my first classmate passed away. And during that time, I had about four months before I was going to uh, repeat the year again. And so I took it upon myself because initially I felt a lot of, like you said, a lot of anger, a lot of, I sort of wanted to throw the ball at the wall. But I know that, you know, if you just throw the ball at the wall, it'll just bounce back in your face. The wall being the school administration, because we just felt that there were a lot of things that could be improved about the way they were supporting students. So because I had that period of time, instead of keeping those feelings to myself, I started talking to faculty. I started talking to students. And we ended up having basically two meetings where we brought about 75 students to talk about their experiences to talk about with confidentially with faculty members who would take this information. And basically that was the beginning of a task force that we created to with the intention of identifying issues where school policies could be improved to better support students. We've uh, over the course of the next couple of months we made a policy proposal and gave it to the school. sort of I tried to channel a lot of that frustration into something constructive. There were some, hopefully, some changes will happen down the line and that will help some students. The challenge, also, I I would just say, was just that the following year, still, my my friend, my other friend passed away. So it was disheartening knowing that, you know, a lot of us, we put so much time and energy into trying to help support students. And unfortunately, we still lost another valuable person, you know, in this world. I think that's initially, though, how I tried to think about it. But initially, I was just anger. And, but yeah, I tried to channel it into something more constructive, I think.
0: I know many friends and families have difficulties discussing suicide, right? So it's hard to know, what do you say? You know, what do you say? Am I am I uncovering the wound that you have? Even years after, you will find that people still don't want to talk about it, right? Because a lot of people still harbor a lot of guilt and stuff. Could I have done something more? Or should I have done something to prevent it, right? So and any time that we continue on and on and on with our guilt, the more that wound will not heal. And families and friends don't quite know how what to say to us, right? And so how do you deal with that sense of like isolation and feeling more and more remote from your family and friends?
1: I think getting support is really important for survivors of suicide loss, because they can talk in a free and open setting with other people who have gone through the same things that they're going through. And it really is just a continual validation of your feelings. The fact that what you're feeling is normal, and it's going to take a long time before it goes away. So I think that's really valuable for people who've lost someone to suicide. They can Mm -hmm. talk in a way other people that they can't talk about with their family or close people around them.
0: Yeah. Francis and Kathy, I know you got involved in in something more proactive after the suicide. So I'll start with you, Kathy. You committed to this work of counseling and helping people through Mm -hmm. grief and loss. Tell me about ERA and what is it and share with us, with our listeners, like what you do to proactively contribute to this tragic, you know, situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. After, you know, I lost foster. I mean, I think it takes two or three years before you can even start to do something like this because you have to deal with your own feelings around it and be at a comfort level so that you can actually go out there and help others. I'd heard about CAR. Of course, my husband and I joined a support group for parents of adult children who had committed suicide. And that helped us a lot. So I always had that in the back of my mind that it was a good organization. CARA is a nonprofit that's headquartered in Palo Alto. And they offer grief support for people, individuals, families, children, anybody of all ages. And they use a peer counseling support model where they enlist volunteers to help peer counsel and give emotional support to people who are grieving. So I went through the training a couple of years ago. They have a pretty intensive uh, several days several week training, and of course you're vetted and interviewed, and you do practice sessions and then they select you peer counselor so what I've been doing is one to one peer counseling, mostly other parents who've lost adult children to suicide, but a couple others who lost friends, for example, or acquaintances to suicide and for me, I think that just really opened up well a lot of healing for one, but just Again, validation, I think, for them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And really, the model is to be there as a supportive listener. You know, we're not trained therapists, but, you know, we have had the training to offer help and support through just being there as a peer counselor because we've gone through it. And, um, you know, I've been doing this now for not quite two years. And yeah, I, I find it really valuable for me in my healing process. And I feel a lot of gratification to be able to give back and to help people. And now that, you know, in April it will be six years for me to hear people that I'm counseling who are more freshly grieving saying, oh my gosh, you offer me some hope because you're standing, you're sitting there talking to me five years later and you've lived through it. You're <laughs> living and I didn't ever think I would get there, or I don't know how I'm ever gonna get there, yeah, yeah, you can offer that hope it's gratifying,
0: yeah, that sense of hope and support, and someone to listen, right, so that's p- fairly important
1: mm-hmm.
0: Francis, uh, I know in medical school, it's probably what about thirty percent have depression among medical students, and more about ten to twelve percent had expressed suicidal. Mm-hmm ideas in medical school what do you think should happen in the medical school i mean we all know the the rigor and the intensity of preparation to even to go to med school and let alone going through the medical schooling itself where you feel so isolated so overwhelmed what do you think should happen to change that environment to make it more supportive more of listening and I guess, less intense, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I feel like it's gonna require a lot of pieces to come together, I think, to make it a better process for students to navigate. The big thing, I think, like in the background, uh, overlying all of this, I think, is just normalizing the fact that medical school is difficult and that people suffer from mental illness and being transparent with students from the beginning that, for example, physician or medical students, suicide is an issue, and already normalizing that from the first day. And sort of on that note's, For example, the University of Michigan, they have a program that also now my school is piloting, where basically from the very first moment that a medical student sets foot on a campus, they're paired up with upperclassmen and a faculty mentor from the very beginning. So they have a support system because, you know, some students, even, you know, even if they're from the same state, they might be coming from a different city. They might no longer be living with family. They might be coming from out of state. So there's a lot of isolation and that comes with this transition. So I think if you can have support from day one and, you know, this normalize it. This is something that uh, mental illness is definitely an issue in medical school. And we're looking out for that and we're looking out for your best interests and already having those relationships with faculty and upperclassmen from the start. I feel like that would be so helpful okay. because right now, unfortunately, that's not the case in most medical schools, to my knowledge. And I think really talking about Wellness, just as an individual, a student problem, but say that also there are systemic things that we can do as a school to make it so that you're not always just having to cope with things that are more a result of systemic challenges that we're dealing with on a bigger level. Not just making a personal or the students' problem, but saying that you know there are things that we can improve also in medical education, and so it's more of a two way dialogue. And because there's no medical student, no medical school, if there's no students, so ultimately. I, you know, if there's one thing, if there are any medical students or students in general or in anyone that's a part of an uh, organization that's listening right now, I just want to emphasize the fact that your voice is incredibly important and so powerful. And if enough of you express that need and make that known, then the system has to change because you are that system. All of you comprise that system. All of you are part of that. And so and that's exactly what we did at my school. And that's why we're starting to see changes happen slowly. And the challenge I would just say with programming like that, that is starting to like the pilot program at my school, unfortunately, right now is that a lot of the faculty members that are helping with them, they're not being you know, paid for this. This is all on their volunteer time, all of the goodness of their own heart. So we also need that second piece. We need data to show that these programs are beneficial, that they're important and they need to be funded, because if we don't start to, you know, uh, also provide those sorts of resources, then these programs are not going to be sustainable. So I think that's a big, another big piece of it as well. So as you can see, it's so many things. and just, you know, reaching out to one another too, you know, just again, it, I think through normalizing it more than it makes it easier to, to talk to one another about just even saying how it's going instead of just, oh, I'm doing good and passing, but really letting someone know, well, it wasn't, it wasn't so well because something happened in clinic or something with my grade, you know, things like that, even everyday occurrences. So.
0: I can't believe that we're almost like 30 minutes into the, uh, the, (laughs) but uh, I I think I I would like to take this uh, opportunity though, to help our audience, to give them some take home points on how to deal with suicide for the living which we should be grateful about that we are living in the midst of this pandemic. And with all of the effects of this pandemic on our psyche, I like you to kind of leave our audience some take on points.
1: It is really hard right now. And I think you really have to kind of find ways one to take care of yourself and do the things that, you know, are often recommended for people who are going through any kind of stress or crisis, you know, that kind of mindfulness, you know, whether it's yoga or music or cooking or just something to ground yourself, I think really helps. And knowing, I think that time is a healer. Your feelings don't go away, but they are blunted by time. And, you know, I think having some kind of support, whether it's, you know, other people who've gone through what you're going through, Doing peer counseling or having a peer counselor or some kind of group that you can associate yourself with really does help. It helps you to normalize those feelings and they really help you with the ups and downs. I think those support groups are very valuable.
0: Do you have some groups that you want to link people to in case they want to look up things like CARA, uh, Cara, which is K-A-R-A in Toronto?
1: Right. Cara-grief.org is the website. And yes, I would um, recommend that for anybody Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. needs the support. Yeah.
0: And Francis for medical students and doctors, local experts, like, you know, our support groups in the medical community and what else?
2: Sure. So the National Silent, uh, Alliance on Mental Illness has a great uh, resources for suicide prevention on their website. If you just type that, it'll show up. There's also a lot of great information and uh, resources like YouTube. There's, there are speakers like Dr. Pamela Wibb. She has a talk on um, just more about the topic. It's literally called Why Doctors Commit Suicide. And I have the National Suicide Prevention Hotline phone number and a text line as well if you're interested in getting that information.
0: Could you give that phone number?
2: Sure. Uh, The the National uh, Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. And the crisis text line, you just need to text 741741, and someone can talk to you.
0: Yeah. Anything else, Kathy? Uh, Any parting messages to our listeners?
1: I just wanted to say the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is AFSP.org, is also a helpful resource. And there are just a lot of material there that you can read up on suicide. They also, in non-pandemic times, have the the out-of-the-darkness overnight walks, where people actually walk 15 or 16 miles from dusk to dawn. They walk overnight. It's very symbolic. And there's Mm. people, you know, they have it in cities across the United States. They didn't have it this last year because of the pandemic. But I paid it a couple times with that. and Yeah. Yeah. I guess as we
0: face the new year, uh, 2020 has been so unprecedented in terms of how we all had been affected by it. I think in terms of 2021, I could think of like hope, resilience, and love and support Mm -hmm. for one another. Any additional things for people to think about, to practice for the new year?
2: This is the first one that came to mind. I don't know. I, I think it's also because I just have my psych- psychiatry rotation, but square breathing. I love it.
0: <laughs> okay. What <laughs> square is square breathing? breathing? More,
2: uh, well, I'm not the most qualified to explain it. However, I, will, I mean, you can look it up, but basically it's like a, was it for four seconds? I don't know. Correct me if I heard this wrong, but basically, you know, you take a deep breath for four seconds, hold that breath for four seconds. And then I think exhale for four seconds with your eyes closed and your feet flat on the floor. Very accessible. It doesn't cost a thing. So that's the first thing that came to mind, I think.
0: Okay, square breathing. Yes, yeah, square and Kathy, breathing. And Kathy? <laughs> you said pursue your passion gardening, cooking, uh, zooming with yes. people, dancing, Zumba,
1: oh, whatever, yeah. whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. And it's. What you
2: a- enjoy?
0: Yeah, I, I still enjoy my hikes and I started this podcast. So um, yeah, yeah. for the audience out there, give us ideas in terms of what you want to cover for the podcast. And thank you, Kathy and Francis until the next podcast. Thank you, thank you
2: for us. Happy thank New you. Year. Happy New Year.
0: Thank, year. You. thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at DrJet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.